2: Down, down,
3: Israel! Down, down, Israel! Down, down, Israel! Israel. American and I'm very ashamed of my American side today. To tell you the truth, I'm very ashamed that we should all be ashamed because it's our money and it's our government that is sending aid. And it's we shouldn't even call it aid. It's not aid. It's weapons. It's missiles. It's tanks. It's bombs. It's the size the size of Hiroshima bombs falling on innocent people. We don't call it aid. We don't call it aid. We don't call Israel, which we call Occupied Palestine, what do we call it? Occupied Palestine! We don't call it Israel, you're colonizers, you steal people's land and you squat. That's not a state, that's not a country. You're colonizers, you're settlers, that's what we call them. What do we call them? Settlers! They're murdering not just our babies, we don't want to just keep talking about our babies, even though 3,000 plus in less than three weeks children have been killed. 3,000 plus Children, imagine if these were any other culture, any other people, not brown, imagine they were white babies. Speaking of babies, speaking of the innocent men, women, everyone, including the resistance, because they have a right to resist. We are out here for a free Palestine. We have clear demands. And the Israel Defense Forces in the contracts between them, these are our clear demands for a free Palestine! Free yeah, yeah, yeah. <ICE-1> oh, Palestine! Free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! babies!
4: babies! Who's paying Who's paying ya? Rave. Kill the kids in the That's what you're for! Keep walking. Kill the kids
1: in the rave! Kill the kids in the rave, huh? The president knows that Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number, uh, certainly, of hate-fueled attacks.
3: Our nation was founded on the fundamental principle that all people should have the freedom to live, to worship, and to be without fear of violence or persecution. Every person has the right to live safe from violence, hate, and bigotry. And today, we take another important step forward in our fight against hate. For years, Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. And so today, I am proud to announce the Biden-Harris administration will develop our nation's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia.
5: Of all times to counter Islamophobia, you've got uh, hate crimes aimed at Jews skyrocketing in this nation, all over the world. That uh, protest that you saw, that was outside the, the World Series venue in Phoenix, Arizona. Death to Israel. They're, they're showing their support for Hamas around the world. And then this is what the Joe Bama administration focuses in on. It makes you think of that verse. Woe unto them, Isaiah 520 I think it is. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. You're listening to Stephen Fleury, and this is the Trumpet Daily. We appreciate you joining us on today's show. You can get to the live video stream of this show every day either at TrumpetDaily.com or our Rumble channel. Just go to Rumble.com forward slash TrumpetDaily. And while you're at Rumble, don't forget to see our, uh, our new documentary, Israel's 9-11. It's more important than we even thought when we were creating it to just tell the story of what happened. All of these, these Hamas baby killers... This is entering right into Israel's sovereign territory and, and massacring people. And it triggers hate crimes aimed at Jews. But what does Joe Bama focus on? Well, you just heard it. It's sickening. It really is sickening. I gave you that uh, that clip from uh, FBI Director Chris Wray yesterday where he talked about uh, uh, 60% of the religious-based hate crimes are aimed at Jews. And they only make up 2.4% of the U.S. population. So overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, hate crimes, religious-based hate crimes, they're aimed at Jews. But Joe Obama, how fitting, by the way, those protesters in support of Hamas. One of them had the, uh, the Black Lives Matter ball cap on. BLM, BLM, support Hamas, hate Jews, it's all the same. And of course, the big target behind it all is America itself. I'll come to that a little bit later. Powerful article, <laughs> just exposing uh, everything that Herbert Armstrong used to talk about when he talked about modern education of course he knew all about the communist infiltration that's uh, discussed in this brochure he was right but the problem with modern education as well and and young people by the tens of thousands they're going into these these propaganda mills every day and they're trained they're trained in certain things we put put a uh, a graphic on our trumpet daily uh, website or our twitter page today just showing you over to the right there you can see you can see the anti-semitism how that it's on the rise it's skyrocketing in the united states and in so many cases it's our universities that are promoting it promoting hatred of the jews as i said on yesterday's show i mean they're they're just taking the mask off it's not like it's not anti-zionism anymore it's just straight up jew hatred This is from Spiegel International. Jews in Berlin are being spit on and swastikas are being scratched into their doorbells. Rabbis are covering up their kippah. Some in Berlin are beginning to wonder, is it time? Is it time to leave Germany? Can this really be happening? Is it time to leave Germany? Some Jews are wondering. And of course, in little Israel, their their only state they're the only nation where it's, it's made up of primarily Jews and also the other two million Palestinians that live comfortably and peace, peacefully within Israel proper. And Israel's fine with that. But Hamas, Iran, Hezbollah, they want to destroy the Jews. Just blow it off the map. That Spiegel article gives quite a few examples of Jews in Berlin experiencing uh, anti-Semitism since October 7th. That, that attack by Hamas, it's inspired. It's inspired Islamists around the world. They, they were cheering after the news came out. This is from the U.S. Sun. The desperate parents of 32 child hostages snatched by Hamas pleaded last night for the terror group to release them. It says the petrified youngsters are being held underground in the 311-mile network of tunnels dubbed the Gaza Metro as Israel uh, battles to retrieve them. You can see that article. You can see the pictures of the little children, little babies snatched by Hamas. Hopefully they're still alive. But what about the ones that they killed, they murdered in those uh, southern Israeli towns? Who does this? And then, and then, who would go out into the streets and actually cheer them on? Well, that would be, that would be university graduates in some cases. Those that are highly educated. Listen to this from, uh, we played, a longer version of it yesterday. This is uh, someone with the New York Times clip five.
0: So um, I uh, I was in touch with people in Gaza by WhatsApp by phone, and the pictures they describe are just agonizing. Just the fear of undergoing this constant bombardment and not knowing if you're next uh, has been you know completely staggering. I think that it's also uh, radicalized.
5: That's uh, that's what's radicalizing these these monsters. It's uh, Israel acting in self-defense. According to the New York Times, Joe Biden was giving a speech yesterday, and this woman stood up and interrupted him and said, you need to be calling for a ceasefire. And he basically said, I am. I'm calling for a pause. This is from the the Fox News website. It says, President Biden said that he thinks the Israel-Hamas war needs a pause uh, during an event in Minnesota. On Tuesday, it says, while Biden was speaking at the campaign gathering, an audience member shouted, as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire. Right now, the president, who has not supported a ceasefire since the war began on October 7th, said that he believed in a pause. So here's the the Joe Obama administration yet again, yet again, flip flopping. Where is this coming from, this influence? This is right out of Barack Hussein Obama's playbook. Yeah, we got to have a pause. Too many Palestinians are being killed, or so we're supposed to believe. It says here, I think we need a pause. A pause means give time to get the prisoners out. Fox News says in his comments, Biden was exerting pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to give Palestinians a brief reprieve from Israel's retaliatory military operation. He also, well, gives more details of what Joe Obama uh, now thinks. Got to have a pause. Got to have a pause. Yesterday, Political reported that uh, Joe Biden's administration is, is basically asking him to prepare to step down. They want him. out. This is, again, right out of Obama's playbook. Who's Israel's main enemy here? You have to wonder, is it it Iran or is it Antiochus? Fundamental transformation. You go back and look at even some of the things we were writing earlier this year. I mean, if if Obama doesn't like the administration, if his deep state doesn't like the administration, they will do anything possible to, to pressure you to get out, to resign, to step down. Politico says, Joe Biden and top aides have discussed the likelihood that Benjamin Netanyahu's political days are numbered and the president has conveyed that sentiment to the Israeli prime minister in a recent conversation. Can you believe this? The timing, just like the Kamala announcement. Think of the timing of this. Israel's fighting for, for its life. And you've got Joe Bama calling up Bibi saying, you need to prepare to step down. Says here, the topic of Netanyahu's short political shelf uh, life has come up in recent White House meetings involving Biden. According to two senior administration officials, that has included discussions that have taken place since Biden's trip to Israel, where he met with Netanyahu. Says, remember that one? Biden invited himself. Uh, I think Bibi was focused on some other things, but here comes Joe Obama's pressure. Yeah, you've got to make way for the fake president. It says here, a current U.S. official and a former U.S. official both confirmed that the administration believes Netanyahu has limited time left in office. See, they've wanted him out from the beginning. And so they're using this massacre. They're using the massacre to apply more pressure. Makes you wonder a few things about the massacre itself. The motivation behind it. Who was behind it? It was well coordinated, it was well planned. And look at what it's triggered worldwide as I've been covering on the show this week. It says here. There's going to have to be a reckoning within Israeli society about what happened, said the, the U.S. official, like others, uh, was granted anonymity to detail private conversations. Ultimately, the buck stops on the prime minister's desk, so they're going to try to pin it all on Benjamin Netanyahu. It's his fault. He's got to go. What a, convenient, what a convenient excuse this becomes for Barack Hussein Obama, who's just had this visceral contempt for Netanyahu. From the beginning, from the beginning, Carolyn Glick sat down with uh, Brent Noctigal in uh, an interview from a few weeks back discussing that that very topic. This goes back to the trumpet in April. Richard Palmer wrote, last week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was defeated and humiliated by the woke mob, he was fighting for Israeli democracy against an out-of-control Supreme Court, and he lost. It says here, at its heart, this is the same fight Donald Trump is now engaged in, in New York, and that's being waged against Brexit in the UK. It's a fight led by a liberal elite uh, who believe they know better than voters and who hate the values that used to be foundational for the United States, UK, and the Jewish state in the Middle East. They hate the Judeo-Christian ethic. They they hate the Judeo-Christian system of governance in these nations. They hate tradition. So Obama comes in back in 2008 and promises what? To fundamentally transform the United States and little Judah and the UK as well, it says the media narrative is that Mr. Netanyahu, this again is from the Trumpet website at uh, April, it says the media narrative is that Mr. Netanyahu is breaking the power of Israel's Supreme Court to set himself up as a dictator. It's the same playbook that they use going after Trump. <laughs> if, if Trump gets in there, if the people speak and Trump gets in there, that's the end of democracy. It's the start of a dictatorship. Bibi's the dictator. You know about all the turmoil within Israel. I mean, the political the political war that was happening well before October 7 and the Hamas invasion. Richard says here, it's not a true narrative. It says, then Israeli military reservists took the unprecedented stance of refusing to report for duty, threatening Israel's security. I mean, this was like a a military coup. This was just back in April. They didn't like Bibi. They didn't like what he was doing. So they said, well, we're not going to show up for duty. It says here, Netanyahu climbed down, announcing in March uh, that uh, he would delay the legislation. That was to restrict some of the power the the, uh, Supreme Court over there had taken to itself. Netanyahu was defeated. It says at the heart of that defeat were not just protesters in Israel, but Barack Obama and the radical left in the U.S. They, uh, they threatened Bibi. They said, hey, you got to dial this back. We like it when the radical left controls the courts. And so he did. It says, if Netanyahu kept pushing these reforms, America would punish him by refusing to support Israel on the international scene. And now you look at what America's doing. Yeah, calling for a pause. We've got to handcuff Israel, the IDF. It says, Joe Biden himself has gotten directly involved in Israelis or, or Israel's politics, and Obama's done the same thing. He contributed to political movements aligned against Bibi. So who, who's the real, I mean, who has the, the dictatorship impulses? These people that just go on and on about the threat their political opposition poses because they want to uphold the traditions of the United States, Britain, and Israel says journalist Lee Smith, well, backing up, once Netanyahu announced that he would pause the reforms, Biden told him to walk away from them entirely. They cannot continue down this road. That's what Joe Biden said to Bibi back in April, March or April, uh, speaking on behalf of the dear leader, Barack Hussein Obama. It says here, journalist Lee Smith wrote that all the different facets of the anti-Netanyahu protests were taking place according to a single blueprint. This blueprint is designed in in Washington, D.C. This is evidence that Bibi is in Washington's crosshairs for regime change has come to Israel. It says during the Arab Spring, democracy promotion became cover for an arsenal of techniques deployed by the U.S. intelligence services and NGOs to undermine governments that the White House, the State Department, and the CIA don't like. That's quoting from Lee Smith. It says here, perhaps most famously, the Barack Obama administration's pro-democracy campaign helped push out Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak in favor of a government run by the Muslim Brotherhood. That was, uh, what, 2011? Remember that? According to Smith, a similar operation is now underway in Israel. They want him out. They want him out. They're using the October 7 massacre, of all things, to apply pressure on Israel's prime minister, pressure on him to step aside. Going back further at the Trumpet, if you don't have a subscription to the Trumpet magazine, call our operators today and request a free one-year subscription. Tomorrow's news today, one 930 3024 This is from uh, back in 2011. This is right at the, the midst of the, the, Arabs, the so-called Arab Spring. It says, what we've seen so far is positive. President Obama insisted at a press conference a few days after Mubarak resigned. I think history will end up recording that at every juncture in the situation in Egypt that we were on the right side of history. I think cozying up to the Muslim Brotherhood, I think that puts us on the right side. That's the dear leader from 2011. It says the mainstream view would have you see Egypt as a country hungry for freedom and peace after a generation of brutality under the boot heel of a dictator. But that view ignores several crucial facts, both of history and of current reality in that country." But who needs to be distracted by the facts? I mean, if you come out of a top university in the West, you know exactly what you're supposed to think about the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, and Iran. You have sympathy for them, the baby killers. you know it's interesting you look at uh, columbia and harvard we've talked a little bit about those institutions those universities just this week i mean that the anti israeli sentiment the anti jewish sentiment coming from the distinguished universities almost right after the october 7 massacre i mean it was harvard and columbia really that led the way all those Harvard organizations, remember that signed that, uh, that document, denouncing Israel, showing support for Hamas. That's modern education today. There's a fascinating article by Peter Wood. If you look at uh, Barack Obama's associations, he was very, he went to Harvard and Columbia, by the way. That's where he was educated, the dear leader. And you you go through that (coughs) Garrow biography. There's not a lot in there about his stated policies from back in the day regarding the the two-state solution, his stance on Israel, and and so on. But he was tight. What was the guy's name? Rashid Rashid Khalidi. He's a Jew hater. He's a one-state solution guy. That, That means annihilate Israel. Get Israel off the map. Khalidi once said that conservative Jews were infesting American politics. What a word to use. Jews are infesting American politics. It's almost like you're portraying the Jews to be animals. That was one of uh, Barack Obama's best buds back during his college years. He was introduced to Khalidi, by the way, by Bill Ayers, the domestic terrorist. What a collection of friends that the dear leader kept. This article by Peter Wood It says, it's talking about higher education. It says here, if you don't like the pro-Hamas demonstrations by American college students, then you won't like American higher education, which is the garden in which these flowers were grown. He's like, you think it's bad seeing these people take to the streets in, in support of Hamas? You ought to visit the university campus sometime. It says, within hours of the atrocities committed by Hamas operatives who invaded Israel on October 7, groups of American college students had organized to express their support for the terrorists. This caught many Americans by surprise. How could college students that some of america's best universities sympathize with the perpetrators of gruesome attacks on unarmed civilians how could this be how is this happening says the surprise however, was not universal. Those of us who pay close attention to American higher education were well aware of the rising tide of anti-Semitism on many campuses and aware as well well of the anger that these institutions had honed against Israel and the sympathies they had cultivated for Palestinian radicals. He says, this is Peter Wood, he says, this academic teapot tempest shines a light on contemporary American anti-Semitism, which has its own distinct character. It says, in America, anti-Semitism often disguises itself as something high-minded. It's just anti-Zionism. You know, we're just against Israeli policy. We're just against Bibi Netanyahu. No, they've taken off the mask, haven't they? death to Israel, chanted on the streets in Phoenix right after the World Series game last night. He goes on and says in this article, I don't know how much time I have to go through the rest of it, but his point is that really America is the primary target here. America, fundamental transformation. That's why this book is so important and has even been promoted by the likes of General Michael Flynn because he knows America's under attack. You can call our operators again and get a free copy of the hardcover version of AUA, 1866 930 3024 Let me just read the rest of this. It says, Although all these explanations have something important to say about higher ed's support for Hamas, I think disdain for America is the most significant american higher education at least since the late 1960s has been disenchanted with western civilization now you talk about being way ahead of his time herbert armstrong was talking about some of these things in the 1960s it's a great article here by peter wood but you read through the missing dimension in sex and there were all kinds of articles in the old plain truth back in the day where he talked about how knowledge has doubled or tripled, but, but so has evil. And a lot of that's coming out from universities. I mean, well-educated individuals, young people. And they're out cheering on the baby killers. It says here, the hostility of lost generation intellectuals and the aspirations of early 20th century progressives to transform America had their effect. He talks about William uh, Buckley, the famous book he came out with in the 1950s, exposing uh, what was happening in academia, but people didn't pay close enough attention or they didn't, they didn't reform the system, it just continued. It says the, the slow elimination of honor, respect, and admiration for those who founded our nation and who in later generations built on those foundations gave way to a new aspiration of liberating ourselves from every stricture of traditional culture and inventing something uninhibited and new and almost always filled with anger towards what came before and what continued to stand in the way. I mean, this, is, this sounds a lot like Alan Bloom, his book back in the mid-1980s, Closing of the American Mind. Look at what's happening to higher education. It's like Herbert Armstrong said, they go into the university believing in God and they come out atheist. What does that tell you? Just that alone. That's communist infiltration and worse, propaganda mills. Training future terrorist sympathizers in Western universities. It says here since both history and human nature stood and will always stand in the way, we set the stage for self perpetuating anger. This, he says, is fertile soil for anti Semitism, an ideology that's always ready to turn. Uh, vague dissatisfaction into directed anger, even to the point of murderous rage. It says anti-Semitism gives meaning and purpose to those who find themselves wandering in the wasteland. Leftist ideology in general fills the void in the lives of students who've been given a curriculum of triviality and self-indulgence. Mr. Armstrong called it radical individualism gross materialism, teaching, teaching young people not how to live, just how to make a, a living. That's it. That's all that it boils down to. And even that these days is hard to come by because it's all about propaganda. It says, hating your own civilization is one form of this strange new satisfaction. Western Civ has got to go, said Jesse Jackson one time. Yep, get rid of the whole civilization. Fundamentally transform it into something you can't even recognize, into something you can't even believe. It says here, where does the new anti-Semitism come from? From the cultural vacuum left by the retreat of the universities from their central task of educating young men and women to be worthy heirs of our civilization Mr. Armstrong used to make the statement that our civilization our society is what the educational system makes it give the students nothing higher to aspire to and they will gravitate to what is lower and aren't we certainly seeing that today gravitating to the the worst of the worst impulses taking to the streets and calling for a nation in our modern world to be annihilated, cheering on the murder of grandmothers and and babies. As I say, it's it's something that you would think a few short years ago would have been unthinkable. Now it's just spreading right across the globe, this anti-Jewish hate echoes of the 1930s. When we come back from a short break, we'll conclude our our program today with uh, somewhat of a unique Bible study. I'll uh, leave it to you to meditate on that during the promo. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. We'll be right back.
0: Speaking to you from our television studios in Pasadena, where I speak to the world as a voice crying out in the wilderness of modern religious confusion. Herbert W. Armstrong was the world's leading televangelist and one of the most prominent religious leaders of the 20th century, watched, read, and followed by millions worldwide. But his legacy of Bible-based humanitarianism came under attack after he died. The cabal of leaders who took control of the church he founded, after pledging to follow in his footsteps, methodically destroyed all he had built. Those who would stop them were silenced or excommunicated. This shocking story of betrayal and deception is told in Raising the Ruins. To learn more, please visit thetrumpet.com.
2: I felt the idea of going to class was a pretty good one, and so I continued that uh, when I've coached other than at West Point. Your kids have to go to class? Well, either that. They have two choices. They can go to class and play, or they can skip class and not play usually they go to class
0: why was that so important since winning is also important
2: well I, well you can win and go to class I mean mm-hmm. when I recruit your son the thing that I tell you is that he's going to get an education I think that's my foremost responsibility with your son and the only way he's going to get it is to go to class so that becomes I think paramount for kids with us and I think that's probably why I, in all uh, the time that uh that I was at Indiana, 29 years, I think I only had four kids uh, who, di- who played four years for us that didn't have a degree. And, and only one kid that played two years, I think we had eight or nine junior college players and only one of them that played two years didn't get a degree.
5: That's the, the late Bobby Knight, famous coach, I think he coached at Indiana University for about three decades. Uh, he died yesterday at the age of uh, 83, and it's been interesting just seeing some of the commentary. Uh, quite a few uh, commentators in the sports world have come out and, and praised him and, and have called called him a, a friend of theirs. But they also say, you know, he's he's a complicated man as well. And they say this, they say this because he was he was a strict disciplinarian. I mean, he he you had to play by the rules, not even just on the court, as he just said there, you had to play by the rules in class as well. And he was proud of the fact that his players were successful in other aspects of life. Of course, he's known for uh, some of his temper tantrums. He he obviously, he swore a lot, a lot of profanity when he was hot under the collar. And, And then the incidents, right? He threw the chair the one time he uh, kicked a chair leg another time, and it grazed his son. And then he got up in someone's uh, face and, and head-butted them a little. So, so he's known for that. I mean, he, he is just, it doesn't take much at all for him to fly off the handle. But if you get caught up in the flaws and the mistakes, which he admits, I'll play another clip for you here in just a second, you overlook some of the impressive strengths. And you lose appreciation for another time, you know, the 1980s, when coaches were more like this. They had authority. They were like father figures to the basketball players or the baseball players or wherever. I can remember some of the the coaches, the strong influence that coaches back in high school and before that had on me. In the 1980s. This is uh, from an interview with Bob Costas. Uh, I forget the year, but it was many years ago. And uh, uh, listen to this exchange. It's about about four minutes, clip seven.
1: But who has the authority to get on Bob Knight in the state of Indiana?
4: You know who has to? Bob Knight has to. And I can't tell you the number of times I've done that. I can't tell you and I don't even uh, discuss it. The number of times I've gone home and I've said, God, I I wish I wouldn't have gotten on that kid like that. I wish I didn't think I had to get on. I wish I hadn't gotten on the team.
1: No matter what you think about Bob Knight, he is an extraordinary basketball coach. Under Knight, Indiana has won three national championships, 11 Big Ten titles, and Knight coached the 1984 U.S. Olympic basketball team that won the gold medal
4: here, we came over too far this time. We got you guys up on top when he could have handled it back here and we needed to push back the other way, but that's not bad.
1: But Knight is about more than just winning. He's known for running a scrupulously clean program. No cash, cars, or other illegal inducements to players. And Knight's kids graduate, almost all of them.
4: The absolute essence of coaching that's
1: good. That's good.
4: is that's how to you teach. You just can't come across laterally like you did. It's got to be up and then back out. I think you're you're using the sport to enable a kid that plays it for you to have an experience that provides him with the background to be successful. I would far rather have a kid involved with a book than a ball.
1: Knight also contributes to the community. Is, on this night, he's preaching the value of the reading to kids dependency. as part of a program called Night Readers. The coach also led a drive that raised more than a million dollars for the, the Indiana under- University 18, Library.
4: The book is a lifetime. The ball is just a fleeting moment.
1: And when Hollywood makes a movie about college basketball, Blue Chips, they go to Knight. Nick Nolte plays a character based on Knight, and the coach himself does a cameo. But for many, the single indelible image of Bob Knight is this. Look at here, look at here. The chair. And it's not the only controversial thing Knight's ever done. There was the dispute with a cop over practice time at a tournament in Puerto Rico and various other eruptions, large and small, but too numerous to list. So far during this turbulent season, even before the headbutt, he had been ejected from two games and accused, he says wrongly, of kicking one of his players, his own son Pat. During a game, if it is important to you to get a message across about integrity, about academics and athletics, and if 99% of your actions are in keeping with that, if there's a purity in your approach
4: to coaching the game, why
1: let that message be blurred right. by this other stuff?
4: I mean, I, hey, I'm not, I have never once said I'm perfect. I, I, I make mistakes, which really doesn't separate me from anybody else. Um, but you I'm, make them in big, flamboyant ways that fit in no, sound bites no. and, and video clips. I, I make them. I make them uh, uh, in front of people, but I don't make them flamboyantly. Somebody else creates the flamboyance around it. Somebody else.
1: If you demand discipline from your players, are you liable to be fairly criticized if there are times when you appear to be undisciplined yourself?
4: Oh yeah, I think so. I, I but. Uh, um, uh, I think you got to take the word fairly out of there. <laughs> I think we've got to take that out of there. Am I liable to be criticized? Absolutely. Uh, an architect here in town uh, sent me a little thing. Uh, any fool can criticize and most do. And, and so uh, am I susceptible or liable to criticism? Certainly. And sometimes fairly. And the final essence of the thing, what is throwing a chair? Am I the only coach in history that's ever thrown a chair, a coat, a clipboard? Uh, water cooler or whatever I mean I joined a long list of guys that have thrown chairs or thrown something I may have been the most infamous or the most famous chair thrower but certainly not the only one
5: the most famous chair thrower who is Costas acknowledged there ran a scrupulously clean program they uh, they abided by the rules And I think some of the the negative commentary that's there even to this day, and now it's out there a little more since he just died this week, but I think some of the negative commentary that you see is, uh, is motivated by this hostility toward authority. Using your fatherly authority to run a clean program, he said there in one of the clips that the, the essence of coaching is to teach. And teaching went beyond the court, as he explained there. Look, the, the basketball, I mean, that, that's just fleeting, a moment. But when you're reading, when you're studying, if you become a night reader, that's for life. That's, that's important. That affects everything about your future. Steve Alford, he played for um, Coach Knight back in the 1980s, and now today he coaches uh, at Nevada, I believe. But it says here, there was no way Alford uh, could talk about his dream all those years ago, a little boy's dream of one day playing for Coach Knight, a dream that eventually came true at Indiana. Alford wouldn't be able to get the words out, what it meant to win an NCAA championship in 1987 about his and Knight's friendship after basketball that was still strong decades later. He said, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. After learning that Knight died, I could not get through a call. Just couldn't make it through. He was so overcome with emotion. I'm sure there were some people along the way that coach Knight rubbed <laughs> wrong and that maybe didn't like him or appreciate his qualities, his good qualities like so many others did. But as I was telling our students earlier today, when you have a father figure, when you have someone who exercises fatherly authority, who even punishes in love when it's necessary, I said that's a that's a tremendous blessing, that's a wonderful blessing that you want to give God thanks for. This is this is an individual. He's a throwback. I mean, <laughs> this is this is old time. You see the way coaches today have to coddle the superstars, and make sure they don't offend them, and the the stars they want uh, they can demand uh, trades even if even if they signed a contract. Saying, I'll play for you for the next four years. And in some cases, I mean look at James Harden making what, 40, 50 million dollars? He's being paid extremely well. But he's quit on two or three teams. Those are your sports stars today. They don't want, they don't want a coach, a teacher, a leader, anybody like that coming at them using authority and actually expecting, expecting you to observe all the rules. Notice this example, and well, I guess I can play the, that final clip uh, that we have, clip eight.
1: It's odd how this passionate, intense man affects his players. He always looks rumpled in his red sweater. They wear ties. He is difficult and brash. They are polite and go to class, playing for night is an experience unlike any other in sports.
4: See where in the hell are you going with the ball? He's moving away, you got a defensive man coming in. I mean, damn it, use judgment. Use good judgment. We can't play with that kind of judgment.
1: Number 25 for the Hoosiers is Patrick Knight, Bob Knight's son. In a game this past December, Patrick threw a pass away. And Bob Knight, well, what do you think he did?
4: I kicked the chair, Uh, I grabbed Patrick's shirt, Patrick, did you think he had kicked you? Um, no, I know he's going for the chair. I mean, my leg just happened to be where the chair was. I mean, I got grazed, but, I mean, as you can tell, he's going for the chair. Patrick knows that there's nobody on the face of the earth I'd love more than, than him, and, and he understands that. He also understands that he made a really careless, bad, blind pass out on top.
1: Bob Knight, in his way brilliant, certainly principled, but at times seemingly unable or just unwilling to see where toughness and integrity ends. And where misbehavior begins
4: people want power but often they don't understand those things associated with it and upon which it may even be dependent and refuse them all understanding people want to win you know people want national championship banners people want to talk about Indiana being competitive how do we get there Uh, we don't get there with milk and cookies. We never have and we never will. I I saw a game last night, a team came off the floor after playing rather poorly, winning by a point, and everybody's really happy. Maybe that's the way I should be. Uh, Maybe uh, that's the way everybody wants me to be, but these banners would not be hanging above my head if that's the way I would have been.
5: The championship trophies wouldn't exist for Indiana were it not for were it not for the willingness to work harder, don't settle for second best. There, there's some, uh, again, there's some quality there. He, he made mistakes. He made mistakes, clearly. But he also said the key is not the will to win. Everybody has that. It's the will to prepare to win that is important. You've got to prepare. He said, He said coaching. The essence of it is teaching. So teaching them how to work and prepare for winning. Another quote that I like, your biggest opponent isn't the other guy. It's human nature. That's your your biggest opponent, yourself. You've got to fight yourself. You know what modern education, just to go back to the first segment, you know what modern education teaches, essentially, that the self is good. It's perfect. It's in fact it's getting better. It's progressing. Bobby Knight understood a few things about human nature. The opponent that, that you're really going to have to fight against is you, your human nature. Notice this from 1 Kings 1 and verse 5, just to come back to this point about exercising authority. And, and preaching and even practicing discipline. This is from uh, 1 Kings 1. It says in verse 5, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and, and 50 men to run before him. And his father, that's quite an entourage. Notice he exalted himself just like the devil did early on. He wanted to put himself even above God. This is what Adonijah did. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, why have you done so? And he also was a very goodly man. And his mother bare him after Absalom. David had some trouble with Adonijah and Absalom too, for that matter. And notice the King James language isn't isn't the best. But the new King James says that his father had not rebuked him. I mean, he was... A goodly man, so he had, he, he had a impressive looks. He obviously felt like he had what it took to be king, to, to appoint himself as king. And yet God inspired, he inspired this record to be recorded this way. Even David, a man who developed a heart just like God's, as it says in Acts 13, he made his mistakes with child rearing. And he, he didn't expect enough of Adonijah. He hadn't kept his, his carnal impulses in check. He didn't, he didn't speak out or rebuke him. The Moffat translation says his father never checked him all his life by asking what he meant by his conduct. The Bible also teaches that we're to train up a child in the way that he should go. And what happens if he veers away from that way? Well, don't forget the admonition that's also there in the Proverbs. Paul wrote this in Hebrews 12, that correction, chastening from a father, is a good thing for a son. It's a good thing for a child to receive. And you can see that even here in 1 Kings 1, verses 5 and 6. There's another example, and uh, I'll just leave it to you. It's First Samuel 2. Um, the sons of Eli, they were rebellious sons, and you, you'll have to read through the details <coughs> on your own time because I'm about out of time. Just to drop down to verse 25, it says, If a man sins against a man, God will, will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the eternal, who can intercede for him? It says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. This is Eli's sons. They wouldn't listen to their dad, for, he was, for it was the will of the eternal to slay them. God eventually intervened to take care of this problem, these two sinning sons. It says in the God family vision, this is a, a book my father wrote, Eli made that covenant, but he didn't live up to it. Eli could not keep the God family structure in his own family. Despite the authority God gave him, if you have God-given authority, if you're in a position of authority, for sure you don't want to abuse that power, but you do want to use it to uphold a righteous program, scrupulously clean, obeying the rules. It says here in verse 29, Wherefore kick you at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in in my habitation, and honor your sons above me. That's That's what God's assessment was. Well, Eli, you're just putting your sons ahead of me. You won't do what I tell you to do with respect to raising them the right way. He thought he had a better way. He thought he was showing more love. In fact, he wasn't. My father does have a fair bit to say. Uh, on that example, in the God family vision, I wish I could go on, uh, as I said, this Bible study segment, a little bit different than usual, but still some good lessons to take away from it. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to submit some feedback, we'd love to hear from you, TD at the trumpet.com. Thank you for joining us on today's show, and we'll see you tomorrow.